and welcome to what is hopefully the first rather than the only one episode of The Sweet Spot on a Farm. My name is Zuzana and I'm the little Czech behind The Sweet Spot cookbook which was launched last October here in Belfast. This time last year I was surrounded by the most amazing people and friends in Brewbot on Ormar Road launching this little vegan cookbook full of plant-based tasty recipes designed for celiacs, diabetics, healthy eaters, people on restricted diets and just about anyone who wants to put more veggies on their plate in, in a healthy and tasty way. It was on the 20th of October last year and that was supposed to be the sweet spot. It was supposed to be just a cookbook but it didn't seem enough so here comes another project and we'll see what happens. As the title suggests, I'm obsessed with sweet potatoes, but um, that's actually not what this podcast is about. This podcast is my way of learning more about plant-based food preparation, food production and organic farming in Ireland. I learned quite a bit in the process of writing the cookbook, but um, there is still so much more to learn and there are so many wonderful people to learn from and I could learn all that on my own but I have been doing that for a long time now and it's just not much fun anymore so I decided to take anyone who will listen on the journey with me and I hope there will be some people listening well we'll see about that won't we there are so many wonderful people in this country dedicated to natural health healthy eating and farming and healthy food production and everybody has their own ways tips and little secrets of trade and more importantly they all have their favorite food and favorite recipes and I really hope they will share some of that knowledge and some of the recipes with me and with you so I should probably stop mumbling now and let you listen to my first guest, who is one of the most inspirational people I met in the last couple of years. This person is one of the pioneers of organic farming in this country and his knowledge, passion and drive are admirable. And I'm really happy and proud that he was one of the sponsors of the Sweet Spot book launch. And now he agreed to share some of his knowledge on the podcast with me. And the person is none other than John McCormick of Helens Bay Organic Gardens. Now before I put John on, I have to tell you about the trip to his farm uh, that I made to record the podcast. At one point, about an hour into our chat, I had to stop and run off to the bathroom. There is a reason why I'm talking about this. The loo on the farm is one of those really old little wooden shacks and it stands at the corner of their field. There's no electricity on the, on the farm, but John did make it work really nicely. He's done a great job. And so so it, it flushes, it, it works, there's water in there and, and there is and you have your soap in there. So it is kind of like going into the loo into your house or it's not in a house it's just outside in a field and and there's no light on and on the way to the loo I just noticed on the way to the loo there is blackberry bushes and I thought it was really strange and amazing that it's October and and the blackberries looked fresh just waiting to be picked and another thing I noticed as you walk past the field um 
you can actually get a really lovely sea view and I never noticed that before and then you get all the wonderful sounds of the nature when you're sitting in the bathroom you're just hearing all the birds and the insects and and the wind playing with the leaves and it's just a really amazing experience. It's probably something pretty normal and obvious to someone who lives in the country, but to someone who loves the country and lives in the city, this is pretty awesome. And if you haven't been on the farm yet, please do go and visit it because it's such a great place to be. And you can see how your food is grown, you can buy organic produce from the farm shop and you can chat with John and other people who work on the farm. And if you have kids, you can let them run around the farm exploring all the food and plants. And it's a really fun way to spend your day. And I felt really blessed to be able to sit out there on fresh air, surrounded by all the plants and vegetables and talk about veggies with John for a couple of hours. Uh, the podcast is not going to last a couple of hours, don't worry. But we did have a really lovely talk even after I stopped the recording. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that You city people, you have to go to Helens Bay Organic Farm and you just have to go to the loo. Yeah, so I'm going to leave you with that and um, over to John now. I hope you enjoy it. I um, would like to introduce everyone, the awesome John McCormick from Helens Bay Organic Gardens. There's a lot of things that I actually don't know about John that I'd like him to talk about. So first of all, um, John, I'm really, really happy that you agreed to do this with me. Welcome to Helen's Bay Organic. (laughs) Thank you very much. I'd like you to introduce yourself a little bit and talk about what you did before you became, because you haven't been always a farmer, have you? What did you do before? Well, I had a very checkered career before I went into farming, but it was only for a few years. I, I started off my working career in a bank and, um, I gave myself a 21st birthday present of my resignation to the bank because <laughs> I really, while it was very interesting in some levels, uh, I was involved in working in the trust department of a big bank which looks after wealthy people's money and I actually just found it too immoral. I just found it completely wrong. Um, every time there was a budget we'd get letters in from solicitors and accountants saying, you know, move money, this money here, move that money there just to avoid paying tax and it just seemed terribly wrong. And, and it was boring. And so I left and I went off to work, to travel a bit, and found myself working on oil rigs, which was a great mechanism for travel. So I worked on oil rigs in the North Sea for, for, for quite a while, and also later on in the Atlantic. And that enabled me to see a little bit of the world and do some thinking about my future. I was still in my early 20s. And I then came back to Ireland and decided I needed to stay in Dublin for a while which is where I was born and reared and so I moved in with some friends of mine who were all doing PhDs in various sciences and that kind of inspired me to I had never studied science and it inspired me to really look into science and so I actually ended up going back to school at the age of 24 to study uh, A-levels in chemistry, physics, maths and biology uh, which I found fascinating and went on then to study agricultural science in university, uh, which I also found fascinating, up to a point. Um, In my second year, after my second year, we had to do a practical training, and by that stage I'd already kind of moved towards realising that something was amiss with agriculture, and had found my way into the organic world and started exploring it academically as well as on a practical level uh, by visiting farms. And so I had to do a practical year, 
you know, coming from a banking and oil rigs and never having and living reared in a in a, in a urban situation in Dublin, I'd never farmed. <laughs> so, I lucky I got a break. Um, uh, I, my first six months though was in a in a glasshouse unit producing flowers, and it was I was very shocked at the level of chemicals and and um, and it just seemed pointless. I I really thought it was it was not a great place to be. So I did my six months. I had to do it because it was a practical part of my course and then um, I was allowed to choose my second six months myself and I chose to go and work in the Camp Hill community which are communities that live and work with people with disabilities and they run workshops of which one is a garden. So I went to live with them for six months and work in their garden and I was to be trained by their gardener who on my third day there fell very ill and was never well enough to come back to the garden. I ended up taking over the garden, <laughs> frantically reading the books as I did, and it was springtime. And um, I loved it so much that I never, went, I never went back. I stayed in Camp Hill for many years and gardened away organically and learned how to be a gardener. And that's where I met my wife and we had children together. I carried on farming. We eventually decided, um, having moved around a few different Camp Hill places, we ended up in Hollywood in Northern Ireland and um, primarily because I had a Steiner school where I wanted my children to go to and I got a great job in the Folk Museum as farm manager which I did for a few years but I'd always had this this burning desire to have an organic market garden so I searched for the, an opportunity to get to rent some land and approach the Panda Boy Estate who have been my landlords ever since they provided this land that we're here sitting in today and so I've been gardening away developing a business um, started off on my own first and then one or two other people now it's five or six other people helping me and we run a, an organic market garden box scheme market stall and farm shop and yeah it's 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 well established so that's really my background that's quite amazing going from oil rigs adventure at such a young age as well it's like 21 did you say that's, yeah. that's pretty young well not really I didn't think it was that young really I, I felt the need to want to explore the world you know and and I don't ever regret, I just wish I had done more, you know. By the time I got to 60, I'm 65 now, I have a bit of a wanderlust, not so much anymore. Um, but I, 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 was, I was always, I'm deeply interested in what's going on in the world. And it was, um, I've seen America, and North America anyway, and I've seen all over Europe, and now I've seen Asia. And yeah, I feel really glad that I've had that, those experiences. And they, they helped me to understand my place in the world, really. That's amazing. So organic farming, though you say it was at university then? That you it was already at university. Again. I was mm. the odd one out. Um, <laughs> you, you know, I just, I was the despair of all my um, tutors and professors, you know. My God, what's this fellow talking about? <laughs> and even my fellow students, ah, oh, there's no future in that. There's no future in that. You'll never be able to make a living at that, you know. And, and that was the mantra I heard right through you know, till I, well, years after I'd established this, you know, I remember the farmer who ploughed this for the very first time for me said, uh, uh, you'll be able to plough it, he says, but you don't grow anything here, it's not this type of soil, you know, <laughs> big heavy clay, you know, and so I grew all the vegetables and he came back in the autumn to check on me anyway and he said, uh, you might be able to grow them, he says, you'll never be able to sell them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been listening to that, I've been listening to that kind of negative response to um, uh, to, to what I wanted to do for now nigh on 25 years why do you and think that is the lack of education it's a lack of um 
imagination, perhaps a lack of education, a lot of different reasons, and an, un, an unwillingness, a bit, of, a bit of fear, I think, around change. People are frightened to change. And there's a terrible deference in the agricultural community to the academic community. You know, they, there's this deference that um, they, they say, well, the men you know, who went to university and are well-educated must know. We wouldn't be doing this if they thought there was something wrong with it. Um, and that's another story in itself too, of course, as you can imagine. So, so I think it's the, I think it's really a lot of uh, there's a lot of issues around why there is you know a real resistance against any kind of change, or especially and and a resistance to organic. And but I also think that the early pioneers of organic farming, maybe myself included, didn't do ourselves any great favors. We were real zealots, you know, <laughs> and perhaps maybe you know if you. If you set yourself up um, preaching to people, you know, and become a bit, uh, a bit uh, of a zealot about it, you know, there is a risk that you just irritate people rather than inspire them. I've stopped doing that years ago, and I just felt, you know, the only way that if I need to inspire anybody to do, to copy what I'm doing is actually by making it work, doing it and not talking about it, but just doing it and making it work. And and then if they want to know about it, I'll answer their questions. I, I'm, I don't go out and proselytise anymore. I'm not interested. There's no point. It's like banging your head against a brick wall. I prefer just to um, wait till people who show an interest come and I can have a chat with them and put them in the right direction so they can get you know the information that they need. What you've achieved is pretty inspirational because right now we're sitting in one of your polytunnels surrounded by hops, <laughs> by amazingly colorful chilies sunflowers and i can see your outdoor oven from here and we are surrounded by fields and fields of amazing produce and you can hear the birds in here and it looks really wild the way i mean to me this is what gardens should look like wild and not too neat but functional this is where all the life is it's it's wildness but it's nurtured wildness you know it's the core of what we're doing here is nurturing biodiversity it's about nurturing life uh, in all its forms here we need every bit of it and more so we create as much biodiversity through ensuring that we have lots of flowers lots of wild areas undisturbed areas for bumblebee nests and and all the other you know creatures and insects that live above and in the ground uh, that there are areas where they can thrive there we grow plants to encourage them in their life cycles because you know so many of them like hoverflies and wasps are actually predators on some of the pests we have on the vegetables. And if you can get that pest-predator balance through the encouragement of biodiversity, you know, you, you achieve, after 27 years, you get to the point where we're at that we actually don't really have much in the way of disease and pest problems. And, and good healthy soils, maintaining good healthy soils by um, always ensuring that they're well fed. They're, they're, they're living soils, they're not soils fed with, with chemical fertilizers, they're soils fed with combination of animal manure, a small, very small amount of animal manure as a stimulant, but primarily through green materials being grown and ploughed back in again. Uh, during fertility building phases, uh, which feeds the microorganisms in the soil, which when ploughed under then provide us with the fertility we need to grow the next crop. So it's it's really about um, creating that biodiversity is the thing that interests me most. In terms of what I've created here, it's partly due to cultured um, 
wildness and it's also partly that I'm probably not the most tidiest person in the world either. <laughs> you know, I have friends who run organic farms that are considerably tidier than mine. But I, I, I try to strike a balance, you know. I, I know where my weaknesses are and, and I work on that, you know. So as to make sure the place is reasonably tidy. We have a lot of children come here with their parents because they want to come here shopping because then they have um, the children can just run wild around the farm and I allow that. So you have to keep the place pretty tidy, really, otherwise, uh, you know, things that could trip up or fall over or machinery in the wrong place or not properly put away, you know, represents a health and safety hazard. What you were talking about, all the biodiversity and, and nurturing the wilderness, and it's really just more than, you know, planting and growing. There's a real science behind it. It, it seems to me that you really need a lot of knowledge to, to be able to do that. Is there a future, do you think, in implementing organic growing in, into universities where people who study agriculture study this? I think the, the academic sea change is starting. I'm constantly looking for interesting academic papers on the future of agriculture and around various issues around agriculture. And Cornell University, for a start, recently produced a very important work on uh, in world insect populations, which are declining at an alarming rate, in some places up to 80%. I mean, this is really serious stuff, you know. This is potentially apocalyptic stuff for nature. I'll give you an example, you know. You don't need to read Cornell University's reports to find this out, you know. If you go and look at the front of your car, you know, in the summertime when you've gone for a trip and come home again, it, when I was young, you know, the cars were plastered in dead insects. Today you hardly ever see a dead insect on your windscreen. That's true, You know, actually. it is. So, you know, so insects, the insect populations have, have dramatically, they've been hit hugely uh, uh, impacted on, and mostly by the, um, the chemicals, the pesticides, that are, and possibly the herbicides too, because they're also highly poisonous, but mostly the, 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 for the insect world, the pesticides, I think, have dramatically affected the insect populations, combined with a bit of climate change and all the other negative things that we all know about. I'm hopeful that science will catch up uh, and move away from you know, the road it took. It, in the post-war years, agriculture took a road that was predominantly chemical, uh, and the chemical sciences won out, and because we, you know, we could produce a chemical that would um, cure everything, uh, or so it seemed, <laughs> and produce produce vast amounts of food in the Green Revolution. Agriculture took that road because money could be made out of it, and it also meant you could use less, employ less and less people. It was more cost effective, so you could produce cheap food. But nobody has ever taken into account the externality costs, the damage to the environment. The fact that modern agricultural methods now contribute to 30% of the carbon emissions that cause global warming. We've had a basically a decimation of rural communities because there are no need for workers there anymore. And, um, and a variety of other things, not least the, bio, the effect it has on biodiversity, which is the one that interests me most. These sort of things are now becoming prevalently known and talked about more. And... Um, I was just reading, funny enough, a report by Lord Melchett just this morning where he was talking about um, the the issues around the use of chemicals and he was saying how um, he was hopeful that there was a beginning of some change because on the one level the current chief 
scientist who's the advisor to the government takes when it comes to business side of it and you know protecting the government takes the government's line on things that everything's fine as long as you know the university say it's fine and it's all being tested and it's fine and he's now uh, uh, separately on, on an academic paper with somebody else has started to question actually whether that's right now or not because they're beginning to realize that the kind of um, we've had a succession of chemicals being used in agriculture for the last 60 years which have all been banned once you know although they were said to be good so he the methodology for how these things are ascertained as to be whether they're safe or not is is fundamentally flawed and that's essentially what his paper is now saying that he believes that how these things are assessed is fundamentally flawed that's a sign of some hope and the only other thing that gives me hope uh, I do I do believe we are and and this is I say this with really cautious reservation but I actually do believe we are at a very very important tipping point of the mess we're making of the natural order of things and if we don't address it at a certain point uh, in the not too distant future it'll be very hard to come back from it. To say such a statement sounds pretty apocalyptic but the only thing that gives me hope in that is that I have watched time and again where land has been taken out of uh, conventional chemical production where the soils are pretty dead the hedgerows have been cut back to nothing so nothing lives in them and they've been restored to, to um, living soils that have been nurtured to create life back in the soil again where the insect populations and the bird populations through not decimating the hedges which cutting them to crew cuts um, allows you know more biodiversity in where insects begin to regain a foothold again there is a tremendous healing power in nature the healing power is there it's available to us um, but we have to make the steps to be able to allow that to happen so there is hope people out there who have a bit of power unlike myself you know I'm just a peasant farmer in Helen's Bay I don't have any influence to wield in the world other than I try to feed good food to people. But there are people out there who've made very successful po political or academic careers who, or, you know, who actually are doing great work to try and bring about the change that we so badly need against intolerable forces of globalised mega companies who seem to have absolutely no moral conscience or compunction about anything that they do. You know, which just appalls me. It absolutely appalls me. There's not much uh, really people think they can do about it, but they really can. People have more power than they think they have. And the most power they have is in their wallet. <laughs> <laughs> you were talking about chemicals, and there's a lot of misconception about organic farming, and there's a lot of skepticism as well. People think that even though you're a certified organic farmer, in organic farming you, get, you can still use fertilizers and you can still use pesticides and chemicals to a certain level and it's actually I, I got my hand on the European Union guidelines for organic farming and and I can see where the confusion comes from would you mind clarifying what actually you can use in organic farming okay very good I think it's probably good first to clarify you know what is the conventionally used you know there's I think it's very important to to understand that the primary chemicals in agriculture today are fertilizers 
which is nitrogen, mostly nitrogen, um, potassium and phosphates, okay? And um, they are, they are the, the building blocks of life. Without those elements, which all belong in the table of the elements, um, you, we can't create life of any sort. And they are the fundamentals of plant growth. And so in order to be able to produce food out of fields, we have to make sure there's enough nitrogen, phosphorus and potassium out there for the plants to thrive on, otherwise nothing will grow. And, and so that, that's the chemical fertilizers, okay? And the second aspect of once, once the fertilizer is in the ground and the plant has been planted, then what happens is you get weeds growing. And so then you have what are called herbicides. And they are sprays that you can spray on the ground and on that plant that are specific to certain weeds but will not affect the plant that you're growing. The next thing is pesticides, which is the third thing. And the pesticides are... Um, are another group of chemicals which are sprayed on the growing plant against all the insects and bugs and slugs and snails and all the other things that might want to eat that plant. Modern food production is completely predicated on the usage of those things. In organic agriculture, we replace the fertilizers with natural methods of producing fertility, which is essentially about generating living organisms in the soil. There's lots of things living in the soil. There's more things living in the soil than there is living above the soil. In order for those to, to keep living, they have to feed, and they feed off organic matter. So you produce bulks, bulk organic matter, either through recycling farmyard manures, which is essentially, you know, either chicken or cow manure, on straw, which you're putting back into the soil again after composting it, um, which then those organisms live off, um, and you combine that with growing crops exclusively for ploughing back into the ground again to feed the earth. And if you include um, any of the legume family, that's the P and B family, they also f they also have a mechanism of putting nitrogen in the soil. They have a symbiotic relationship with a bacteria on their roots that lives in the soil that actually produces nitrogen nodules, little white nodules. They look like the chemicals, but they're not. They're natural, natural, pure nitrogen on the roots. If you pull up a bean plant, you'll see these little white balls on it. And that's, they're pure balls of nitrogen. And so when that wheat bean plant is cut, that the nitrogen plant, uh, sorry, the plant dies, uh, but those nitrogen modules, modules stay there, slowly rotting away, and allow other plants to come and soak up that nitrogen. We use a combination of things. We grow green manures here in this field out here beside us here. We grow a combination of buckwheat, because it's great for insects when it flowers. It really, really fosters billions of insects around here, feeds them right throughout. It's a very long flowering period, so it feeds them right throughout the summer and lets, you know, as I say, maybe hundreds of millions of hoverflies and all kinds of other flies, butterflies, every sort of fly, um, complete its life cycle. And... Um, and then we also grow in among that Phaechilia, which is a blue flower, which is great for bees and, um, and nectar hunting insects. And, and then on top of that, we grow uh, in between all that, uh, sewn in with it as well, we grow sunflowers, which then pop their heads out over the top of it and produce sunflowers, which are um, great for feeding birds. And they will bring all the birds in, and then when the whole thing dies down, they'll also, all the seeds, unfortunately, you know, fall to the ground as well. But then those sunflowers attract the birds in because of the sunflowers, and then they'll see all the other seeds, and they'll lift all the other seeds off the ground. And when you go to plough it next spring, then it's a nice, clean, ready, highly fertile piece of ground. And um, so that's building blocks of, of organic agriculture and a combination of recycling any animal manures that are available combined with um, growing green crops to plough in. We call them green manures. 
and then you crop it for two or three years and then you go back and build up the fertility again. Uh, and if you're a dairy farmer, you would have, instead of having, you know, sunflowers and buckwheat, you grow grass and clover. Clover is a legume. And you would let the cows graze it for two or three years. And it does the same thing. It fixes nitrogen in the ground, creates vast amounts of organic matter. And the cows, you know, do the thing all over it. So you don't even have to carry it out and put it on the field. They do it for you. <laughs> OK, um, so that's another way of doing it. And the only chemical that's allowed in that process, it's not a chemical, is a stone. And that stone is limestone. And we, we are allowed to bring in limestone, crushed limestone, for the soil if the pH of the soil is wrong. It's very important. Uh, Northern Ireland's soils are mostly a very acid soil, and you need a neutral soil to grow food. Most foods require a neutral soil around 6.5 pH. Most Northern Irish soils are 4.5 to 5.5 uh, on the acid side. There are limestone areas where you would never be putting lime on because the pH would be high. You're allowed to bring in crushed limestone, which is essentially just a rock crushed to you know powder and then spread on the land um, and that's the only chemical input that you would be allowed in organic agriculture for fertility building and then for pest control and weed control we have no herbicides for weed control everything has to be done mechanically uh, we have machinery that will hoe 90 percent of the weeds so 10 percent of the weeds will have to be hand hoed or hand weeded the fact that we have machinery now, very, very clever machinery, you could even get computerised machinery if you want to, I couldn't be bothered, but you can get very clever machinery that will weed mechanically, uh, sitting in front of a tractor, will weed mechanically a field um, and kill off 90% of the germinating weeds, so you're only left with 10% to have to do by hand instead of the whole 100%. Which... I have a really stupid question, but how does the machinery know... What to pull out and what to leave in? No, it doesn't. What it does, it, it doesn't. It's, it's designed that it just weeds very, very close to the plant, around the plant. The 10% is the tiny little bit of weed left around the plant that if you hit the plant, with the exception of cabbages and leeks, if you hit the plant, you could kill the plant. Okay. So it weeds just right up to the edge of the plant. You have those tools on a tractor and you have it sitting in front of you and as I do in a small, tra very tiny tractor, it's called a tool carrier and they're sitting in front, right in front, you can look at it as you're driving along and steer in between them. Wow. And if you steer wrong, if you, get, if you lose your concentration, you can wipe out, you know, 100 plants very quickly before you realise it. So, you know, you have to really concentrate and be careful. But it's vastly quicker and more efficient than, you know, two men going out with a hand hoe trying to hoe it. It's very, very fast. And there are certain plants, like um, transplants, like leeks and cabbages, grow on in, you know, in, in little trays, and then you transplant them out. By the time you're ready to hoe them with the first flush of weeds. They're actually quite a robust little plant. They'll take a bit of knocking about. So you can set those rubber fingers, the weeders, to actually toss the plants about a bit. And so it'll weed around the plants as well. Anyway, that's how we do it. We don't use chemicals. It's all mechanical or hand hoeing. And um, which obviously adds a bit to the cost. If you just went out with one big machine and sprayed the whole thing, you'd have it done in an hour. It could take us a day to do the same thing. Uh, and one person sitting on a tractor uses a sprayer or it would take two or three men, maybe four men to do the same thing all day. You know, you can see why the economics of it and that's why people use it. Um, so there's, there are no herbicides allowed in organic agriculture. Uh, in terms of pesticides, um, there, is, there are organic pesticides allowed, but they're all naturally occurring things. There's very few. There's, they allow you to use um, the biological agents, like in the tunnels we would, um, for a pesticide, we, if we have um, red spider mite, uh, which would be the most common problem in a polytunnel, especially in tomatoes. And they can, if you let them get out of hand, they can completely destroy a crop. Um, so what you do is you um, can buy 
boxes of a wasp. This particular type of wasp that's a predator on the red spider mite okay. and you basically seal up your tunnel with nets and then you release a couple of thousand of these wasps that are bred specifically um, that you can buy by the kilo if you want and you release them into the tunnel and they go around mopping up all the, um, the red spider mites before you open the things and let them out and then you just let them fly away <laughs> um, you can buy boxes of, of ladybirds to do the same thing with green fly you can you can just release 10,000 ladybirds into a huge ginormous polytunnel or glass house and they'll mop up all the green fly and then let them then when you're ready you open the doors and let them out wow <laughs> so that's a biological way of doing it there's a, a bacteria called bacteria thuringiensis I don't use it because I find it too messy. I don't like the thought of it. But it's a bacteria that, is a, that actually is a predator on um, caterpillars. I have put my children off broccoli for life by cooking up and serving them broccoli with caterpillars falling out of it. <laughs> Boiled caterpillars Oops. falling out of it. <laughs> they won't eat broccoli now. <laughs> What I have to do now is break up all the florets and make show them actually look no caterpillars it's safe <laughs> and they're and these are now grown up children who still have a problem <laughs> you, you know I've scarred them for life <laughs> with caterpillars so but you can spray them with with this bacteria and it only it only has a three day life cycle it dies after three days uh, if it doesn't find a predator and but even if it finds a predator it dies it just goes into the predator kills off the predator and then you know, falls off into the soil and, and it's a naturally occurring bacteria. That would be something that some organic farmers would use. I personally don't need to. We use nets, we cover, you know, to stop butterflies laying eggs on our brassicas rather than spray. I just think covering is much better. And we have to cover anyway because we've got rabbit and pigeon problems. So we get the benefit of the fact that they're covered against rabbits and pigeons means they're covered against butterflies. Only the odd one peeping out through a hole here or there gets covered in caterpillars. And I'm quite happy to let, you know, out of the... 20 odd thousand greens that I grow every year I'm quite happy to let 15 or 20 of them go to butterflies quite frankly you know they've got to, they've got to survive too the other thing that's allowed only in Ireland but they're going to ban it now would be using copper mixed with lime limestone copper uh, copper sulfate copper sulfate which is a chemical mixed with limestone for which is a contact it's not a it doesn't go into the plant it's a contact uh, for potato blight but we don't, we don't use it and we don't need to use it anymore because we now have blight-resistant potatoes, which means you don't have to spray them. You don't have to use anything. So that's going out of fact. That is being now reconsidered in organic agriculture for um, not to be allowed to be used anymore. And I can't think of anything else um, that, that I'm aware of. There are nothing else that certainly I would have ever used. I would have used bluestone. I would have used you know, the copper in the past before these blight-resistant potatoes came in. Um, and I, I used bacteria turingensis once for a very serious infestation of, of butterflies um, and caterpillars. And, and that was what put me off it. I just didn't like the idea of it. So I, I never used it again. And I use nets instead, which I find is a much better solution anyway. So you're yeah. just really using the life cycle and, and the nature against nature. Yeah, we are. The way it should yeah, be. Yeah, it is. And as for, um, you know, the big other big one that you might want pesticides for would be aphids. Aphids are a big problem in, um, in lettuce and other crops, especially in lettuce. Um, but if you've encouraged hoverflies and um, beetles and um, wasps and... Um, ladybirds on your farm they just gobble them all up 
And so we have, a, over the years, we have dramatically reduced the aphid problem. The only time I might ever see aphids would be in early, early forced crops in a polytunnel, just before their predators have come out, <laughs> you know. So that they're, they're just sneaking in there about a week or ten days before the predators are out to sort of wipe them out. And so sometimes that might be a problem. But, you know, hey, you know, we grow 20-odd batches of lettuce sown over 20-odd times from the beginning of January right through to the last sowing is in the first, last, the last week of June. You know, if one of those batches... It gets lost, you know, it's okay. We always allow for 10% of our crop for nature because nature needs it. That brings us really nicely to seasonal crop. It's October at the moment. What does autumn at Helens Bay look like? What do you guys grow? What do you harvest? What are the challenges of, of this particular season? In many ways, uh, autumn is the best season of all because it's the time of plenty. We have just about everything at the moment. Uh, we're now having this chat on the 7th of October and we still have lots of summer lettuce left in the fields and more coming on, you know, winter salads coming on in the polytunnels. We have pumpkins. Um, I actually counted it the other day. There's enough greens to provide every one of our customers with, with one, if not two, greens a week from now till the end of April. The same with leeks. We have um, 8,000 leeks sitting on the fields, you know, which will just sit there and we harvest them each week fresh right throughout the winter. The only time we won't be able to harvest them if we get a really hard freezing. A frost won't, won't stop us, just a freeze. So there might be, there'll always be one or two weeks where we can't harvest. But uh, most weeks we're able to harvest, as long as there's not a really a deep freeze. So the cold doesn't actually kill the crop? No, not the least bit. No, no, God, no. I mean, that's the great benefit of living here in Northern Ireland in a temperate zone, is that we don't have to have cold stores and special storage units. We can keep everything in the fields. Um, so we keep all the greens in the fields. The potatoes are up in David's farm now in Kilmore, where we grow the potatoes with David. They're all... Um, in the process of being dug in this this month, and they will go into into a, into a dark store, a cold dark store. Have to keep the light off them so they don't go green. And we draw on them on a weekly basis. Take a box out and take what we need out of it and put the box back in again. Um, carrots though stay in the ground. Parsnips stay in the ground. We dig them as we need them. Uh, the leeks stay in the ground. Dig them as we need them. And the um, all the greens which we've cauliflower at the moment. We've got Romanesco cauliflower. Black kale, green kale, Russian kale, Savoy cabbages, um, January king cabbages, um, huge variety of of, um, of greens. Uh, we're still harvesting cucumbers, we're still harvesting tomatoes, we're still harvesting beans. You name it, it's all here. This is the time of plenty and it will be like that for at least another six weeks. Um, and then once you get into sort of the end of November, beginning of December, you're really down to then the winter greens, which is kale, cabbage, a spattering of cauliflowers in between, um, leeks, and then potatoes, carrots, onions, and parsnips and beetroot. And in the polytunnels, we'll always have salads. We, we do winter salads. We do rocket and mizuna and you know, winter salad packs. So our, we have 10,000 square foot of polytunnels. So some of that uh, won't be put into salads because we need it for carrots you know, sown in January. Um, but the rest of it will go into winter salads. Do you guys grow any?
fridge. No, we don't. We're the only fridge. I did grow strawberries, but our problem is that we don't we don't have electricity in our farm, and I've always resisted getting it in. It would cost for a start three thousand pounds, and I never figured it was worth it. You know, we've always managed, um, and with LED lights off a battery in the pack house in the winter, you've got all the light you need. You know. For very little. We prefer to just grow things um, that you can harvest and sell on the spot and you can't do that with strawberries or raspberries because they, when they're ready to harvest you have to harvest them and you have to put them into a fridge to keep them and get them, you've got to get the temperature down if you want them to last. Uh, we have a lot of apple trees which now, I've, this year is the first proper harvest of decent apples coming in but they're only five years old so they're very young. It'll be another five years before getting any volume out of them and, and, and anyway it's only 25 apple trees. We need, I'm planting another 25 this year. So we are growing growing a lot of apples. Yeah, the fruit thing is very difficult. Um, we, we, we offer fruit as an extra. We just basically do apples, oranges and bananas. And we can't grow oranges, we can't grow bananas, but people want them. So we, we have a, a wholesaler, who, an organic wholesaler, who provide us with organic apples and oranges and bananas. What I want is somebody to start growing fruit, you know, who has maybe got the capital to invest in a cold store and can deliver fruit to us here on a Wednesday, Thursday and Friday when we're delivering to our customers. That would be wonderful. I'm not ready to do that. I'm 65, you know, I'm not planning You huge don't look changes. 65. Well, that's <laughs> it's very... all the vegetables and fresh air. <laughs> that's very kind of you. Uh, I do, some days I do feel, <laughs> I can assure you. <laughs> but no, I don't feel my days are over yet. Anyway, I have no plans to retire. I'm slowing down a wee bit, but I have no plans to retire. So before we conclude... What's with the hops behind you? Okay, the hops was something... I This tunnel we're sitting in is a small tunnel that's sitting opposite where we built a covered area and inside that covered area, um, it's rainproof, uh, it's just basically four pillars with a roof and then inside that area we have built a beautiful red brick platform and on top of that um, we built a clay cob oven. So we can basically um, host events here, which at the moment are usually just personal things, you know, for family or friends. The reason I put the hops in is because I wanted something that would grow up and over the top of these bars inside the pot to shade it a little bit over the table we're sitting at and create a bit of shade. And so um, I spoke with a friend of mine who owns a brewery and he said, come on down. He says, I've got some hops in my garden. This was springtime. He said, you can, you can have a few cuttings. So um, I put in these six cuttings in here and the idea is to, um, they've been incredibly successful, they look beautiful. Um, we've harvested the hops and took them to the brewery. I spent a morning in the brewery with his hops and my hops and another man's hops in another garden. Between the three of us we managed to harvest 16 kilos of hops which will make 1500 bottles of beer. So my hops made 500 bottles of beer. <laughs> So, Very yeah, nice. and it's a green hop beer. It's quite different than dried hop beer. Dried hop beer is a very different flavour. Green hop beer is much more bitter. So it's like a real traditional bitter. Um, and it doesn't have as good a shelf life. So it all has to be drunk by Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> and they do look lovely. They look very beautiful. And... Um, and they look less beautiful now in October since we took all the hops off them and they're beginning to die back a bit. But... Um, yeah, and the first year of growth apparently was, is supposed to be quite weak. Well, that doesn't look weak to me. It looks remarkable. So that one behind you didn't grow very well because it took it took ages to get established. So it only went halfway up the bar instead of all the way up. But, you know, next year I'll take a few more cuttings and I'll go back a little bit more. I want to get another two, one here and one here. 
and that'll be enough. Makes the polythonal look very romantic. <laughs> does. We had a wedding here and they took photos in here. Oh, lovely. They did. They took photos in here because it just looked lovely. It really is. So the plan is to replace the my beautiful ancient caravan, <laughs> which I love and nobody else does. <laughs> and it's going to go and what we're going to do is we're going to build a log cabin kitchen as an extension to this area here. Out wow. there. And that will then be an outdoor kitchen and, you know, with stainless steel sink and prep areas and you know, all, the, all the proper things together with the cob oven. So we can actually do um, invite people down to do um, demonstrations of cooking, harvesting and cooking food here. That sounds amazing. Uh, yeah, and they can do it as a private party or they can do it as part of a you know, course on how to cook pumpkins, how to cook this, how to cook that. And it's part of, you know, it's the kind of thing we have to do. We want to promote what we're doing. We want to promote healthy eating. We want to promote good quality food that's sustainably grown, organically grown. Part of, um, of launching a new website is also about creating a gallery area with videos on these different things, how to do this, how to do that. I'm hoping we'll be able to put your podcast up on it. So <laughs> if anybody feels inclined, they can listen to it, you know, on our, through either Facebook great. or wherever, share it on our Facebook And that's true, actually, you did launch a new website recently. So what's the benefit mainly for your customers? Communication. I mean, it's people are live very busy lives. And, and those that do get down here, I spoke earlier about, you know, the children that run around here, you know, they just, when, par when people come down with their children, like little Harvey the other day wouldn't go home. <laughs> he didn't want to go home. He just loves it down here so much, you know, and his mummy came shopping, lets him play for an hour. And even after an hour, he still doesn't want to go home, you know, and, and, and that's great, you know. Um, but most families can't do that. They can't get here. Um, and so we have to create something else for them that keeps them interested, keeps them connected to what they're doing. Because we've got a business to run, you know, I've got a yeah. lot of wages to pay every week and, and, and rising every time. Wages are going up all the time every year and costs are going up every year. So, you know, we, we, we have to be very businesslike about it as well. We've got to have a, a decent number of people buying vegetables off us to, to survive. So... If people can't get down to the farm to buy your vegetables and if they can't make it um, to St George's Market because your stall is there only on Saturdays, mm -hmm. how else can they get your vegetables? Our box scheme. We do a home delivery service of seasonal packs of vegetables, three different sizes, delivered to your house every week or once a fortnight, whatever suits you. And can they order it via... The website. On, the, on the website, just go onto the website and order it and they can either decide to pay by cash at the door, send us a cheque in the post, do it online or set up a card payment system every week and they can forget about it and any time they get a delivery it'll be deducted off their card, you know, it'll be very simple and, and quite a wide variety of things that they can order. The difference with the home delivery services it's a fixed box we decide what goes in it every week and but we do, we will be putting up recipes um, I, I'll, I'll be connecting those to our website so people can then if they guess something strange like a pumpkin which is not so strange anymore but there's a lot of people who don't know what to do with a pumpkin it's all about um you know we have to extend it beyond just growing the vegetables we're not just farmers anymore we have to be able to engage with people to tell them how to use our products as well and although many of them do there's many of them that don't and so it's important for those that don't that we actually offer that facility that I, I know nearly every chef in Belfast certainly all the old chefs in Belfast I won't know I don't know many of the younger ones anymore um, but all the oldies you know were, were good customers of mine in the past you know so you've got Michael from Dean's and you've got um, 
um, Niall from uh, James Street James South. Street South and Paul Rankin I've known for many 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 years so I was I was actually thinking of looking them all back up again and say come on guys you know I need a recipe out of you <laughs> get it to get up on my website you know and that would be nice you know what is your favorite vegetable out of all the seasonal vegetables that you're growing at the moment and would you share a recipe with oh your listeners? Oh my goodness, what's my favorite? My goodness, I Do love... Do you even have a favorite? No, I love everything. I love everything. I wasn't that terribly fond of red cabbage till I started cooking it with, um, with apples. You it's, have to share this. Well, it's really simple. You, you simply... Um, I basically... Um, uh, chop up the red cabbage, chop up an apple. I put in, I get some uh, apple juice rather than water or stock, just apple juice, and enough just to cover the bottom of the pot. Bring it to the boil, turn it right down to simmer with a lid on it, leave it for about a half an hour, stir it, and serve it up. Just like that. You don't need to add, you can, you can go any way you want with it, but you don't need to add anything else. It's just absolutely perfect, just like that. And the apple just gives that bit of tart sweetness to, to 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 the red cabbage that it needs do you and peel that apple or do you know i the never peel? peel an apple ever no. how do how do you chop it do you i just, just i quarter it okay i quarter it and then i just cut the core out okay and um and then i just slice it into bits and then throw it in and when once it's cooking for half an hour it just it it, it melts anyway and i tend to use a, an eating apple an l-star eating apple rather than a cooking apple because it's the sweet one i'm looking for a bit of sweetness to balance the taste of the the red cabbage you know which is quite acidic and so um if you put those two that's a fantastic combination but it wouldn't necessarily be my favorite i don't know what my favorite is pumpkin i love pumpkin um i make a, i make a special dish with pumpkin i um i fry onions in um, a little bit of oil. Sometimes I use um, uh, coconut oil because it, it tolerates heat best, but I can use olive oil or olive oil occasionally as well. I just saute them off and then I chop up some pumpkin into, into cubes and I throw that in on top of the pot with the, with the sauteed onions. And then I put in um, some lentils and then I cover the whole thing with water and then I put salt and pepper. And then at the very end, I cheat. I put in, I, you, could, you could go the way of using natural spices, but I use, for that particular dish, I use a paste, a curry paste, a madras curry paste or a tiki masala either. And there are some really good organic ones now available. From my perspective, I just haven't had the patience yet in my cooking to study spices and have a spice shelf and know how the volumes to put in. I've tried it and made terrible messes in the past and nobody could eat it because I'd put in too much of this or too little of that, usually putting too much of the hot stuff. Um, so I found there was just much nobody ever noticed with a good paste with my quality paste nobody's ever notices the difference <laughs> I certainly couldn't but you possibly could but I certainly couldn't um, and uh, so I put in a bit of curry paste and I basically let the whole thing simmer uh, for about 20 minutes half an hour and then I get my my potato uh, masher and I mash it up and so it makes a kind of a like it comes out like a thick sauce and um very thick sauce, you know, and uh, and then I you can leave it as thick as you want, and then I serve that. Uh, it's like a dal. Yeah, yeah, It's just yeah, like yeah. a dal with pumpkins in yeah, it. Yeah, like a really nice thick. 
curry yeah. soup. That's right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And it's lovely if you serve that up with steamed potatoes, steamed carrots, and greens, and a few other vegetables. You know, that's all you need. You've got a dinner, and I can put all that. I can put that a dinner like that together in about forty-five minutes. That sounds delicious. I might actually mm. try that. I have mm. a slow cooker, so I might actually throw it in a slow cooker because I don't have the patience to, to stand yeah. by the hob for half an hour. I'll just. Oh, you don't need to. I just, just put the lid on and you yeah. just cover it up, and because it takes you half an hour to cook a dinner anyway. Yeah. You know, and if you're going to do a pudding, you know, you've got to even if it's just apples, you've got to core them and, you know, flavor them. I usually, I was saying earlier to you, I, I, you know, quick pudding is just I take some nice eating apples and I core them. And eating apples are sweet, so I just core them, put some raisins into them and stick it in the oven. And then you eat that afterwards with a bit of custard or a bit of cream even. and Or yogurt. We often have it with yogurt. And it's totally delicious as, you know, as a pudding and and uh, totally natural. And, and like, well, it takes two minutes. <laughs> so th- these are the kind of things anyway, that, that whole side of things I feel like um, is it's fun. You know, cooking is fun. Cooking is interesting. And, and eating together is fun. It's the, it's the building blocks of, of a family is to be able to do that. People don't do that yeah. anymore, do they? Well, I think some do. Uh, lots of our customers do. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a worrying trend that everybody goes off with their iPads when they're mailed to some different corner of the house to eat their dinner. <laughs> you know? I often find myself eating dinner at work because I don't like eating too late. And when yeah, you find yeah, yourself at yeah, you 7 late, o'clock yeah, and you're still yeah, sitting at work, you may yeah. as well eat there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you don't mind, I will share this lovely pumpkin and lentil recipe more than welcome with our listeners and mm. i will try it and, and post some pictures as well thank you so much for for sharing your knowledge and if you don't mind i'd really really love to come back for another season when it comes to winter i think that's great come back in january or february yeah yeah february is a good time because it's still winter the deep winter but um we're also just starting to sow seeds so we're in the we're in that transition phase from uh, we're still in winter, but we're actually indoors starting to, you know, get some heat into the glasshouse and start sowing piles and piles of seeds. And yeah, it's an exciting time for the farm. It's kind of the new year for us. It's a good time. So do, do please. Great, we'll do and that. And thank you. Thank you for, for, for coming here and doing this for me. Well, thank you for talking to me and we'll see you in February then. Thank Wonderful. you. Wonderful. I hope you enjoyed the chat as much as I did. And as you heard, I have been invited to come back to Holland's Bay in February. So I'm really looking forward to that. And in the meantime, there are other people on my list I really want to talk to. And I'm hoping to bring another episode in two weeks time. And we'll be talking some more veggies with another interesting guest. And I'm not going to tell you who that is. So to find out who it is, you'll just have to tune in again. Now, if you like the sound of John's pumpkin recipe... Check it out on the Sweet Spot Facebook page where you can download it and make it at home. And I've made it since. And in fact, that's what I'm eating right now. And it's really damn good. Don't forget to visit a Helens Bay Organic Gardens new website at www.helensbayorganic.com where you can contact the farm, create an account. If you are within their delivery range, um, you can order the veggies for every week with free delivery right to your door, which is pretty amazing. But if you have family and a spare weekend, I really do encourage you to come down to St. George's Market on Saturday and buy some fresh produce from their stall or even better do go down to the farm and get your veggies from the shop looking back a few years i never thought twice about the people 
who grow our food. And now I have such a respect for anyone who can grow anything. And I feel that farmers like John need a lot more recognition for what they do because after all, without them, we'd be starving. We'd have nothing to eat. And I think many of us keep forgetting that. So next time you look into a plate full of vegetables, full of food, just, just for a minute, think about the farmers. And um, that's it from me now. Have a great weekend. Go get some veggies. Make some good food and stay healthy. Your host was myself, Susanna, the author of The Sweet Spot. Music has been provided by Mark J. Adair of Synchro Studios and artwork by Gemma O'Hagan of Gemma O'Hagan Design. Thank you for listening.